Singapore succeeded exceptionally well, not because of original thinking, but because Dr. Go King Sui, the founding deputy prime minister who inspired me, said, Kishore, no matter what problem Singapore encounters, somebody somewhere has solved that problem, for sure. There's nothing new in history. So he said, if you encounter a problem, let's go and find the solution. And then what we do, we copy the solution. So Singapore has succeeded by being the best copycat country in the world. Inilah Endgame. Halo teman-teman, hari ini kita kedatangan teman dekat saya, Profesor Kishor Mabubani, orang yang sangat piawai sekali mengenai berbagai masalah, berbagai isu, berbagai dimensi. Uh, beliau adalah mantan uh, Dean di Likwan Yu School of uh, Public Policy di Singapura dan sudah memegang banyak jabatan uh, di mancanegara. Hi Kishor, good to see you. Good, good to see you, Gita. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. It's it's a real honor for you to be on our podcast. Uh, you know, we've we've had this podcast for only a little over two and a half months. Uh, I wanna I wanna just basically get started with uh, asking you a simple question on on how you actually started out. Your your parents uh, were from India and they migrated to Singapore. Tell us. Well, uh, my parents uh, uh, were I mean were Hindu Sindhis when they were alive. Uh, and they were born and brought up in Sindh, uh, which is now in uh, Pakistan. Right. And as you know, there was a very tragic, painful, bitter uh, partition uh, between India and Pakistan in 1947. And as a result of that, uh, both of them landed up in Singapore in 1947. And I was born here uh, in 1948. So that's how uh, uh, I ended up not being born in uh, Pakistan, but in Singapore. Okay, and and what what shaped your your academic uh, interest all along in your early years? Well, uh, actually, you know, I had no academic interest in my early years. <laughs> you know, in fact, we we had no books in the house. I mean, okay. and right now, as you can see, I'm surrounded by books. Because my my parents had no education at all. My father, sadly, uh, uh, his father and mother passed away within the first year uh, of his life, and so he was brought up by his his sisters, and unfortunately, he was not given any opportunities, and he must mm. have stopped school probably at the age of 12 and at the age of 13, he came to work in Singapore in 1933 as a peon, uh, earning five cents a day. So he had a very hard uh, life. Uh, in fact, he started smoking, drinking, gambling uh, from the age of a teenager. And then, of course, he had an arranged marriage with my mother. And uh, she has, she must have had up to primary six, I guess, or a bit older, secondary school education. But she came nowhere close to any kind of high school or university education. So there was no no dream, no aspiration to go to university or, or any such thing uh, all through my childhood. Did they, did they try to basically have a different approach with you that it was important for you to pursue tertiary education? Uh, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, they, I mean, they, we see that I landed up in university, right, completely by accident. I <laughs> uh, see. Luckily for me, I did well in the school exams. I seemed yeah. to do well in exams. So I would, uh, after O, after O levels at the age of 16, I, I, I got a bursary. That's how I ended up doing my A levels, uh, at the age of 17 and 18 high school. And then when I finished high school at the age of 18, I did what all Cindy boys did at that time. I started working as a, a salesman in a textile shop, earning $150 a month. But then what happened was that by, Completely out of the blue, a uh, complete surprise. I was uh, offered the president scholarship, which paid $250 a month. So my mother said, $250 a month is more than $150 a month. So why don't you go to university? That's the only reason why I went to university. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, and when you went to the university, what, what hooked you? What, what interested you? Well, I mean, I, uh, luckily for me, uh, what really saved my life is that at the age of about nine or ten, uh, very young, uh, uh, I discovered the public library in my neighborhood. So I began reading lots and lots of books from a very young age, you know, just but they were all borrowed books, uh, from the library, novels, uh, you know, uh, uh fact, fiction, and uh fact based books and uh, and uh so the love of reading carried me mm. into university and of course the the most enchanting moments I had in the university was literally sitting between two like uh, racks of books on the floor and reading philosophy books and of course I studied philosophy in university mm. and I fell passionately in love with what I was studying. Hmm. And so, uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, I, I never had any problem doing well, uh, in university or in exams. And in fact, uh, for someone who came from a relatively poor family with no tutoring, no guidance, I ended up, uh, topping the faculty results at the end of university. You've, you've, you've done okay. You've done okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, who, who would have been your most or one of your most uh, favorite philosophers throughout your study? Uh, well, when I, I did philosophy both at undergraduate and at master's level. And at undergraduate level, by far, the, the philosopher I studied the most was Ludwig Wittgenstein, who's a, a Austrian-German philosopher. And... Uh, and then when I went to do my master's uh, in philosophy at Dalhousie University in Canada, yep. I uh, did a comparison of the concepts of freedom and equality in the writings of John Rawls okay. and Karl Marx. Wow. And I must say, I enjoyed reading Karl Marx a lot. He's an amazing writer and uh, uh, with amazing hu- insights into uh, the human condition. Okay. Why, why Nova Scotia of all places? Very simple. Again, by accident. Uh, <laughs> okay. The head of my department, uh, seriously, it's all by accident. There's no, there was no plan at all. Okay. And I'll tell you a funny story about going to Nova Scotia because, uh, uh, 
I had no idea where it was, by the way. <laughs> what happened? You know, I've never that, been there, but you know, it's a yeah. place I want to go to one yeah, day. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's it's really remote. I tell you, my story will explain how remote it is. Uh, um, I I ended up in Nova Scotia because the head of the Department of Philosophy in Singapore, Roland Puchetti, an Italian American, uh, left the Department of Philosophy in Singapore and ended up becoming head of the Department of Philosophy in Dalhousie University in uh, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And so he gave me a scholarship. So I said, okay, you give me a scholarship, I go. So I went as a result of that. And I had no idea where it was. So I look at the map and the map, according to my world map, it seemed very near New York. So I flew to New York <laughs> on Aerofloat, very cheap economy class. And when I arrived in New York, I took a bus. Oh my God. And the, and the bus took, you took forever. Two, two, two and a half days. <laughs> 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 I mean, I was, I, I didn't know. I said, I, I said, according to the map, it's so near, but it's, you know, you know, and it's Greyhound. So every, every few yep. hours you change yep. and you, you know, so it was a quite an interesting journey. Wow. Wow. <laughs> hey, I, I want to, I want to digress a bit. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Muhammad Rafi. Yes. The famous Indian singer, right? What, what got Absolutely. you hooked with uh, Muhammad Rafi? Well, my, uh, uh, when I grew up as a child, of course, we had no, uh, the only uh, instrument of uh, leisure we had was a radio. And Radio Singapore would play for one hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening uh, songs from Indian movies. And, and so Mohammad Rafi was on all the time. And what's interesting, I find, you know, I can only write today uh, at the age of 72 mm. or even the last 10 years if I listen to Mohammad Rafi. And I have, a, 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 of course, a very amateurish theory that the songs in my childhood that I'm listening again and now seem to be igniting some childhood neurons in my brain and making it easier for me to write. Uh, wow. And there's a huge difference between the quality of my writing with Muhammad Rafi and the quality of my writing without Muhammad Rafi. <laughs> wow. And there's no way I could have written, uh, published seven books, seven books in the last ten, in the right. last fifteen years, uh, without Muhammad Rafi. Wow! Throughout the writing of each book, yes. you had it on. You had Muhammad Rafi always, on. Always. My always. God! Wow. Without fail. Otherwise, if, if if I mean, I just it, my brain doesn't work. <laughs> I see. Well, I mean, you know. You, your brain is working fine <laughs> under any circumstance. <laughs> no, no, no. But did you ever play musical instrument post the radio era? Uh, no, unfortunately. You see, we don't, don't forget, we had a very basic education. Yeah. And we never had access to any kind of extracurricular learning or extracurricular uh, activities. So no musical learning, no music, no no sports training, nothing. Uh, just just regular school. Okay. Now I'm I'm just curious. You had Rafi, then you had Marx's, you know, yeah. uh, philosophical ideas in your head, right? Yeah. And absolutely. How, how did those two shape your thinking about where Singapore ought to go forward in the sixties? Well, I think that in the case of Singapore, I must say that. I'm looking back now and I ask myself, why have I been able to be relatively productive? I mean, producing seven books in uh, 15 years, 
Uh, and I think it's a result of the fact that I learned a lot without being aware that I was learning a lot from the three geopolitical masters I worked with. Uh, they were, of course, Lee Kuan Yew, the founding prime minister, Dr. Goking Sri, the founding deputy prime minister, and uh, Rajaratnam, the foreign minister. And I spent a lot of time with them. And I think it was their constant uh, curiosity, questioning, challenging, asking, that in one way or another, I absorbed in my mm. brain. Yeah. And so I continued basically uh, using their methodology of always asking questions, and 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 of course, if you don't, you don't, you don't get answers unless you ask questions. <laughs> and they taught me how to ask the right questions. And so, they, without them, I don't think I could have written as much as I did. Mm. Wow. Well, I mean, I, I don't mean to peel the onion the wrong way, but how many episodes of you're asking the wrong questions would have been there? <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are Probably many, zero, many. right? No, <laughs> no, you. no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. We all, as you know, we are all human. We make mistakes and uh, mm. uh, I've made lots of mistakes in my life. So, you know, uh, and uh, of course I've gone, uh, gone down the wrong track, hit a wall and turn around and come back. <laughs> okay. Look, uh, let's fast forward, okay? Uh, I've, mm. I've read all your books, the latest one of which is uh, has China won. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to talk about that and what inspired sure. you and your thinking about Asia and the world over? Well, I think uh, uh, I, it was very clear to me, even four or five years ago, that the biggest geopolitical contest that will rock the world will be the one between the current world's number one power, which is the United States of America, and the world's number one emerging power, which is China. And I could see even in Obama's time, uh, especially in his second term, a growing misunderstanding developing uh, between US and China. And of course, they became much worse under Donald Trump. And so I, I, I told myself that clearly this is going to be the big issue of the day. Why not try to explain the structural causes of this conflict uh, to everyone? And also, uh, not just by the goal of the book is not just to explain, but to also provide a path for uh, the U.S. and China to climb down from their uh, growing confrontation uh, with each other. So the, 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 the goal of my book, hopefully, is a, is a noble one uh, to prevent a major catastrophe from happening. And I'm, I'm glad that at least the serious people who have read it uh, like it a lot. So Farid Zakaria read it and liked it a lot, made it the book of the week. Uh, Martin Wolf for the Financial Times read it, liked it a lot, and immediately agreed to provide me with a very generous endorsement uh, of the book, you know. So I've been very uh, fortunate that uh, a difficult book like this has been uh, understood and uh, appreciated by many people. Look, I mean, it's it's if if one reads just the title of the book, right? It's easy to misconstrue this book as being pro-China, right? 
Uh, I'm trying to help with the sales of your books here. Uh, what what would be the one or two things that you want to tell the Indonesian people so that they can actually uh, read the book and have a much broader based understanding of where China and the U.S. stand? Well, I think Indonesia definitely will also be affected right. uh, directly or indirectly by a major geopolitical contest because all countries around the world will be affected. But the key message, even despite the title, this is not a pro-China uh, book. Right. Uh, paradoxically, it's my American friends who have reacted far more enthusiastically to the book uh, than my Chinese friends. And by the way, it has not even been published in Chinese in China. <laughs> because, of course, it, it contains be. some... It, 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 I hope it will be, but it contains some criticisms okay. uh, of China. But the, the key the key message of the book is that uh, there are profound misunderstandings between the United States and China. And I'm trying to explain to both sides uh, how profound these uh, misunderstandings are. So just two big, two, two, two big points about the book. The first is, of course, that I explained the structural forces that are driving this uh, contest. The first structural force is that the world's number one power for 2,000 years has always tried to push down the world's number two power. That's normal behavior. And not, the second structural force no one talks about, which is the fear of the yellow peril. And in the Western psyche, there has been a fear of the yellow man ever since the Mongols almost took over Europe 800 years ago. And then you have a third structural force, which explains the bipartisan consensus inside the United States against China. And this third structural force was an expectation on the part of the Americans that if they opened up China economically, China would then open up politically, and China would become a liberal democracy like America, and they could live happily ever after. Of course, that never happened at all. And of course, future historians, when they look at this American expectation, will be very puzzled that a country like America with only less than 250 years old, with one quarter of the population of China, it believed that it could transform a country like China, which has got four to 5,000 years of history and four times the population. So it showed you how naive this uh, uh, American belief was. But even more dangerously, the Americans have misunderstood China in a very profound way because they, they keep thinking that this contest with China is a bit like the old contest between the United States and the Soviet Union, which, of course, the United States won handsomely. And in the old contest, it was a contest between a dynamic democracy in America and a rigid Communist Party in the Soviet Union so the democracy defeated the rigid communist party system. What I do in my book is I dig deeper and I explain how the dynamic democracy of America has functionally become a plutocracy in America, where all the decisions are being made not to benefit the people of America, but the top 1%. And the bottom 50% in America have seen the average standard of living go down over a 30-year period. And that's why you have a sea of despair among the white working classes that has led to the election of Trump. The election of Trump could have been anticipated by this structural change in America. And in the case of China, instead of a communist party system in China, China has become the world's largest and most uh, effective meritocracy where they managed to get the, the, the incredible people of incredible quality of mind 
to serve at the highest levels of Chinese government and, and, and to get into the highest levels of Chinese government is as competitive as getting into McKinsey, where I believe you got into, or as competitive as getting into Harvard University. And as a result of that, the current performance of the Chinese government is much better than the current performance of the American government. And this has been confirmed by COVID-19, where right. even though the, the, the virus began in China, they only have, they've had a, a few thousand deaths only. And if America had the same number of deaths per capita uh, as China, then instead of having 240,000 deaths in America, they would have had less than 1,000 deaths if the American government had reacted as competently to COVID-19 as the Chinese government had done so. So it shows you so dramatically how this contest is no longer between a dynamic democracy and a communist party system is between a plutocracy, which has become dysfunctional, right. and a meritocracy. And I say in a competition between a plutocracy and a meritocracy, a meritocracy can win. And that's why I say the book is called Has China Won? Wow, that's that's very compelling and deafening. Uh, I mean, going, you know, alluding to your naivete argument and alluding mm. to your plutocracy argument, mm. it's it's rather obvious then where things are going to end up, right? And and how do you think this will dovetail into the global order and how it mm. dovetails into ASEAN? I'm just curious. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the uh, you know, uh, in my book, uh, in, in the very first chapter, mm. I have a fictional memo written by one of the colleagues of President Xi Jinping to President Xi Jinping saying, Dear Comrade Xi, we have begun a great contest with America. Of course, we will win the contest, but, 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 China must never underestimate America. <laughs> And and that's a key point I make in my book also, because as Winston Churchill said, you can always count on the United States to do the right thing <laughs> after it has explored every other Everything option. <laughs> so right now, United States is getting it all wrong. And that's why my book is actually a gift to America, because I'm explaining yeah. to Americans, these are the mistakes you're making in dealing with China. And at some point, I think that hopefully they'll wake up to their mistakes and realize that they have been very naive in the way that they're managing China. What, and, what are the uh, chances? I, what are the chances that they'll wake up to this call? Uh, well, I, right now, unfortunately, you know, the, 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 the great paradox about America, something which I find difficult to understand, is that they have the largest number of strategic think tanks uh, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on strategic think tanks in Washington, D.C. and the rest of the United States of America. Uh, and then they have the poorest strategic thinking in the world. <laughs> uh, and I'm not even exaggerating. It's really awful strategic thinking uh, in the world. And, and, and of course, as you know, I mentioned in my book, I had a one-on-one -on -one lunch with Henry Kissinger, who confirm a critical point that I make in the book, that the United States has launched this geopolitical contest against China without first working out a strategy. And, and that's the stupidest thing you can do, right? But that's what the United States has done. And, and, and at the end of the day, for us in Southeast Asia, in ASEAN, the best thing we can do is to have private conversations with our American friends and tell them that nobody in Asia 
want to take sides against China. Nobody. You know, I devote a whole chapter in my book to explain that even though we have concerns, obviously we have concerns about uh, China becoming so strong, uh, so powerful, and I explain it in a very simple way. You know, I be, when, I be, if I, when I began this conversation with you uh, 20 minutes ago, there was a little cat sitting there very quietly, purring away. I was very happy. Then after my conversation with you 20 minutes, I turned around, the cat has become a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you get very nervous, you know, yeah. you get very worried. Yeah. And so the in China has gone from being an economy that was 10% of the United States in 1980 yeah. to having an economy that's uh, larger in PPP terms. So it's clearly the cat has become a tiger and you've got to deal with the tiger differently from dealing with a cat. And that's why you've got to, you've got to change your attitude towards China. That's okay. a reality. And you cannot, the, wow. so China is not going to go back to becoming a cat anymore. China is going to be a tiger. And of course, we are worried about the tiger in our neighborhood, but we've got to find ways and means of managing this tiger. And unfortunately, to be fair to China also, uh, China has not fought a war in 40 years. China hasn't fired a bullet in 30 years. So, you know, it's quite remarkable that the Chinese have been very strategically disciplined. Yeah. And by contrast, the United States, even in the last year of the Obama administration, and Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize in the first year of his uh, uh, presidency. He dropped 26,000 bombs on seven countries. Yeah. A lot of I people mean, didn't why? realize that. Yeah. And, and so the United States, as a friend of America, you know, United States of America has spent $5 trillion fighting post-9-11 wars. $5 yeah. trillion. If that $5 trillion had been given to the bottom 50% in America oh God, who've seen yeah. their standard income go down, yeah. each citizen in the bottom 50% would have received a check for $30,000. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Why yeah. burn it in fighting wars when your own people are suffering? And so this is where I think, again, as a friend of America, I'm trying to give advice that will benefit the American people. You know, there's there's a lot of wisdom in what you've just said. I mean, I'm just trying to think whether Donald Trump was the wake-up call or Joe Biden is the wake-up call. Uh, unfortunately, you see, uh, the United States still has not woken up yet. Okay. Either with Trump or with Biden. Because there's a denial over the biggest fact of uh, uh, the American condition mm that it has become a plutocracy. Mm. Now, in theory, you can walk, you can change a plutocracy and walk away from it. But what's happened is that the very wealthy have been able to use their money to influence political decisions yeah. that create tax regimes yeah. that benefit the top 1%. As you know, the carried interest provision oh, yeah. that benefits hedge fund managers. And by the way, the guy who warned against this is one of my favorite philosophers whom I mentioned earlier, John Rawls. And if you read his book, A Theory of Justice, you know, it's amazing how prescient he was, you know. He said, John Rawls said categorically, if you allow money to determine politics, then you will get political decisions that favor the wealthy. And that's exactly what's happened. And he warned against it. He, he, John Rawls warned against this clear. And you know, I met John Rawls in person, amazingly enough, when I spent a sabbatical in, in Harvard in 91, 92. Mm. And all I'm asking Americans to do 
is go back and listen to American thinkers, American yeah. philosophers, and see where you went wrong. You know, it's it's pretty systemic, right? If I, I've I've been making the same case you have just now uh, in many classrooms, uh, the the inflation of financial assets has gone up much more disproportionately higher than the inflation of real economies, particularly Abs- that of the absolute, U.S. Ab- absolutely, yes. And and I don't see this as being fixable in the near foreseeable future, right? So as much as you think or we think that there could be a wake-up call, I, I, I'm not sure if that, that wake-up call is going to be enough to fix that systemic issue. Yes, right. uh, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. And the key word is systemic. Mm. Uh, and a systemic issue requires a systemic solution and not, not a change of individuals from Trump to Biden. That makes no difference at all because the system is still in place. And at the end of the day, the fun, you know, the, as, as, as I, I cite Martin Wolf in my book, the fundamental mistake was a decision made by the Supreme Court. Uh, which treated companies as uh, in individuals and they could give as much money as they wanted to to the political process. And the net result of that, obviously, was that money was going to determine political outcomes uh, in uh, the uh, uh, United States. And that's exactly what has happened. Uh, you know, in, in the U.S., for example, uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies can lobby the Congress to pass legislation that prevents the U.S. government agencies from negotiating lower prices from U.S. pharmaceutical companies. Now, if this happened in Singapore, it's called corruption. Yep. But in, in America, corruption My country is illegal. Too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if any pharmaceutical company lobbied the Indonesian government to say you cannot, you cannot lower your price, cannot yeah. ask for lower prices for the Indonesian people, Indonesian people will be very angry. But that's what's happened in America. But you can't stop it because it's money. You know, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, th- there is a pattern here, right, in terms of mm. how the corporates have been able to co-opt political wisdom, mm. if not democracy. Uh, as of late, I think the technology companies have been exercising their lobbying power uh, mm. with such might that, you know, it's just unthinkable in terms of how they've been able and how they're going to be able to continue co-opting, you know, the mm. democratic wisdom in the United States or many other countries. What's what's your view on that? Your, your question is about co-opting... Uh, Democracy. Or, you know, well, Amer- I, you know, you, you mentioned the, the pharmaceutical example, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. mentioning the technological example, right? Because yeah, the technology yes. companies have basically mobilized as much, if not more, lobbying, you know, uh, in D.C. and even at the state levels, uh so I'm, yes. I'm not so sure. Yeah. You know, but you're, you're also right about the technology companies. And I think the technology companies are being very unwise in uh, trying to use the, their lobbying power to pass legislation in their favor because there'll be a popular backlash against them. And that's already happened, you know. But at the end of the day, it's not just the technology companies or the pharmaceutical companies. It's, as you said, it's the whole system uh, that has to be changed. And here, frankly, the most fundamental decision that the American people have to make is to say that the outcome of the democratic process 
should be decided by people and not by money. Yep. That's the most important decision they have to make. And yeah. so, for example, in countries like, like say, Singapore, Australia, and other places, there are very strict regulations on how much money you can use when you go for elections. Right. And that's also true of most European countries also, mm. because they want to make sure that the people with lots of money don't end up winning the, the game. And But in the case of the United States, the opposite, absolutely opposite happened. Mm. And the United States... Uh, uh, has become a country where money decides uh, yeah. outcomes and not people deciding outcomes. Yeah. And so we in the rest of the world, I would say Indonesia as the third largest democracy in the world should carry out a study of how money has distorted the uh, American political system and put in place legislation now to yeah. ensure that this doesn't happen uh, in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. I think we've done enough studies we're just waiting for the publication of the books <laughs> of those studies <laughs> hey let's let's move on uh, on on a sure. on a more positive note right uh, i intuitively with the biden presidency assuming he's going to get you know inaugurated on the 20th of january mm. uh, intuitively uh, there could be better hope for renormalization between the us and china uh how how do you think this will will imply for southeast asia well, I think uh, with Biden, the tone will change, but the substance will not change because Biden's hands are tied. And uh, his reason is that his hands are tied because there's a very strong bipartisan consensus in the United States today that, it, that this is the moment for United States to take China on and to defeat it. Mm. And I think it's also driven by, you know, there's a very powerful consensus in what is called the deep state. So in the Pentagon, State Department, CIA, NSC, yep. they all agree that number, that China is the number one challenge. And, 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 and while Biden will be courteous and friendly uh, towards President Xi Jinping, and by the way, uh, the one man who spent more time with Xi Jinping than any other leader is Biden. Because when Xi Jinping visited sure. United States, Biden sure. was his host over four to five days and has spent more time talking to Xi Jinping than anybody has. So the personal chemistry between the two men will be good. But that doesn't change the, the rock solid consensus, uh, within the, and, and, and if Biden appears to be too soft on China, he'll be massacred. So we in Southeast Asia should not think that the U.S.-China geopolitical contest is going to blow over soon, that it will be carrying on. And so we should be, we should be ready. We should be preparing shock absorbers hmm. uh, in Southeast Asia to prepare for the shocks that are going to come. And the best way to prepare a shock absorber is to make ASEAN stronger. Because if all 10 of us stand together, it's easier for 10 of us to say no to China or 10 of us to say no to America than for us individually to say no to them. Is there hope for that? No, we've, we've had episodes where maybe one or two out of the 10 might have thought differently in, in the past few years. Is there, is there yes. more hope now? Yes, and I think I hope the Chinese learned a very important lesson from 2012. And as you know, in 2012, uh, this is now open information. Uh, there was a lot of pressure uh, on the Cambodian government 
to block any references to the yeah. South China Sea in yeah. the ASEAN com- communique. Mm. And as you know, your your friend Marty Katalagawa... Yeah. I was a colleague of his at that time. I was, exactly. I was still in the he, government. <laughs> that's right. Go ahead, he, go ahead. he saved the day. Marty saved the day. Uh, Cambodian opposition by going around, flying around Southeast Asia and getting agreement. And finally, he managed to get an ASEAN joint communique uh, out. I must say that was a, a heroic performance by Marty, which I think has not gone unrecognized. I know. Uh, He's he, a good he man. Should, he, should, he should win the ASEAN Medal of Honor for saving ASEAN uh, at a very difficult time. But I think the lesson I hope the Chinese learned from that, and I've repeated that in all several of my books now, that it is not in China's interest to divide ASEAN. That was a mistake. It's in China's interest to see a strong ASEAN. Uh, because then you have a stable uh, set of countries in your southern border. Because if ASEAN breaks apart, then it provides opportunities for China's adversaries like United States to come in and use these divisions and use some ASEAN countries uh, against uh, uh, China. And that's why, by the way, the Chinese made a very wise decision to go ahead with the signing of the RCEP oh, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. this week. And that's a very big deal. And and that shows the recognition by China that they really need a strong ASEAN because RCEP is an ASEAN initiative and not a China initiative that has been successful. I was I was one of the initiators in 2012. Mm. <laughs> well, you 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 you, uh, you deserve to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but let's let's peel the onion here on 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 RCEP. Okay, I'm I'm of the view, uh, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you on RCEP. Uh, I think it is it is uh, not only is it the right framework for ASEAN and China and of course the other countries of South Korea, Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, unfortunately, India, you know, uh, didn't uh, get a chance to join up. But I think it resonates a lot better with uh, developing countries like Indonesia, you know, the framework mm. of RCEP. And and I used to be quite vocal about this uh, in the mm. sense that, you know, I was a little bit more hesitant about the TPP framework mm. because it was a little too 22nd century uh, mm. as opposed to RCEP, which I thought would have been more 18th or 19th century-ish. Mm. And geopolitically... And economically, it's easier to roll forward as opposed to mm. roll backward, time-wise. And, yes. and it's worked out okay because it resonates yes. with people in Laos, Cambodia, Indonesia, and, and mm. some others in Southeast Asia. Uh, in contrast, I'm, I'm of the view that I think it's going to be very difficult for Biden to re-engage the world mm. over with respect to TPP, given mm. the domestic COVID-19 situation. And, mm. and where RCEP is going to go. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious of, of your views on this. Yes, I remember very well your, your statement that TPP was a 22nd century <laughs> agreement. <laughs> uh, and I was about to quote it to you when, when you, when you said it. I, I remembered it very well. And that RCEP was an 18th, 19th century. I think I would say 20th century agreement. <laughs> okay. No uh, disagreement. Uh, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but I must say, uh, that if you want leading indicators of what the world of 2050 will be like, mm. 2050, 30 years from now, it's going to, it has been made by decisions made in 2020. 
and the decision of the RCEP countries, China, Japan, South Korea, ASEAN, Australia, New Zealand, to sign RCEP means that when there were three competing visions for this region, one was the Asia-Pacific vision captured by APEC, then you have the new Indo-Pacific vision that the United States is selling now to bring India in, and then now you have the third, the East Asian vision. And of these three possible outcomes for our region, the signing of RCEP and the walking away from the United States from the TPP has killed the Asia-Pacific vision. The walking away of India from RCEP has killed the Indo-Pacific vision. And that leaves the East Asia vision. Right. And so the, the, it's very clear the shape of 2050 is being made by decisions made in 2020. And I can tell you, India has made a huge strategic yeah. mistake in staying out of uh, RCEP. And, and what is puzzling, I'm an ethnically an Indian, okay? You know, the uh, Deng Xiaoping made one very important observation. He said, why is it Chinese are so successful everywhere around the world except in China? <laughs> and the reason for that is there's no economic competition inside China. The state was producing everything. Right. So he brought in economic competition to China. And sure yeah. enough, the Chinese in China became as competitive as the Chinese in outside China. So in the same way, the right. Indians are hugely competitive everywhere in the world they go to. And, and you know, the most competitive laboratory in the world, as you know, Gita, is the United States of America. The best brains from all over the world go to the United States of America to compete. And guess which ethnic group has got the highest per capita income in the United States? It's the ethnic Indians. And, you know, it's only Indians can run the world's largest corporations. Like Google is run by Sundar Pichai and... Uh, Satya Nadella uh, at Microsoft. Uh, and, uh, Satya Nadella. In fact, Satya Nadella and I had a private conversation recently just to talk about the world also. And the... Uh, um, so you can see that Indians are inherently competitive. So why is India frightened of economic competition? In fact, the rest of us, paradoxically, we should be frightened of India joining RCEP <laughs> instead of India being afraid of joining RCEP. Yeah. So yeah. there's something is wrong here fundamentally. And I hope that the in some, some Indians will go back and think very hard because the decision to stay out of RCEP uh, the decision to stay out of RCEP, sadly, and I want India to succeed, obviously, right? I'm an Indian. I want India to succeed. But India's decision to stay out of RCEP is going to damage uh, India yeah. because at the end of the day, the strategic dilemma that India faces is that mm. by staying out of RCEP, it gets short-term gain, right. but it gets long-term pain because the economy is not competitive. Mm. Whereas by joining RCEP, they get short-term pain. They get creative destruction of some industries, but you get long-term gain because you become uh, competitive as an economy. This is fairly, this is not rocket science, you know. This is very basic. And and I'm surprised that, and, and frankly, the the, the, the the real story about India is that there are vested interests in India sure. that are also preventing sure. competition from coming to India. And, and yeah. that's unwise, you know. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I don't know, the little part of me says I think India is going to come back to the table. 
luckily the the, the framework I hope you're you're right (laughs) well luckily we're not we're not giving a time limit to India you know Uh, whereas other countries only have 18 months to join uh, you know, so it's it's a free call option for India. Uh, you know, if they get their act together, I think they'll come to the table. Yeah, and it's very wise to keep that window open for India. And I hope India wakes up and realizes that it'll be left out of the game uh, if it doesn't join our set. Right, right. And and I'm optimistic on the basis that India, technologically speaking, has been opening up to the Googles of the world, the Microsofts of the world. And, and the Facebooks of the world. So that, that I think is a reflection of what's to come. I think they're going to have to learn to open up. Uh, and yeah, probably the first few years they're going to be exposed to cheap Chinese goods and services. Mm. But you know, they'll, they'll be very competitive as you had mm. suggested earlier. Very competitive because they're, they're, you know, uh, uh, I, I can say as an Indian that uh, in my encounters with Indians, I discovered they're not stupid at all. <laughs> <laughs> It's like talking fact, to yourself, in fact, right? In fact, they're, they're, they're all super smart. <laughs> hey, uh, I, you know, I want to, I want to pick one of your many books that I've read, uh, The ASEAN Miracle. Uh, it's a, sure. it has been an inspiration, uh, to mm-hmm. me and to the people that I've taught in classrooms. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about this. Uh, you've, you've made the point in that book mm-hmm. that ASEAN deserves a Nobel Prize for peace, for, for having kept ourselves peaceful and stable. Please. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. think, uh, I, I must say, uh, it's very sad that the Nobel Peace Prize is decided by a group of old Norwegian, mostly gentlemen, uh, <laughs> because I think many of them don't see uh, what's happening in the non-Western world and don't understand what's happening in the uh, non-Western world. And just to give you... Another example, I thought it was very unfair uh, for them to give the Nobel Peace Prize for the Aceh Agreement to a wonderful Finnish gentleman who is also someone whom I know and met, instead of giving it to the Indonesian president, SBY, you know, or and his vice president of color. Say no more, man. I mean, it was very, very unfair. Yeah. Uh, Very, very unfair. But it reflected the the Western mindset that only Westerners deserve Nobel Peace Prizes. So in the same way, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee has done a huge disfavor by not giving ASEAN the Nobel Peace Prize when it celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2017, uh, when I published the book, The ASEAN Miracle. Because it's what ASEAN has done is absolutely amazing. I mean, when future historians write about ASEAN, they'll be amazed that an organization that was designed to fail in 1967, and it was designed to fail because his two predecessors, Asa and Mafirindo, died within a few years. And ASEAN is also by far the most diverse region on planet Earth. I mean, out of 650 million people, you have 250 million Muslims, 150 million Christians, 150 million Buddhists, Mahayana Buddhists, Hinayana Buddhists, you have Hindus, Taoists, Confucianists, and we even have communists. It is by far the most diverse region of planet Earth. And if the most diverse region of planet Earth, a group of developing countries, can keep peace for so long with each other, surely they deserve the peace prize. No mm. other region even comes close. So, I mean, like, even to, I mean, I, I, it's wonderful to give it to the World Food Program and so on and so forth. But frankly, if you're talking of peace, Real peace. It's ASEAN that has delivered peace. And I think they, they, 
at some point in time, I hope the uh, Nobel Peace Prize Committee will wake up and realize what a huge mistake they have made in not giving ASEAN the Peace Prize because no other organization deserves a Peace Prize more than ASEAN does. Wow, that's that's very powerful. Thank you for for vocalizing that again and again and again. <laughs> now let's at let's... some at some point in time they will listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think they will. They will. Now let's let's. Let's talk about ASEAN here. ASEAN has differential marginal productivities, right? Mm-hmm. And and I always look at Singapore as the apex of marginal productivity. They've, they've been able to prove to the world that they can produce in the most efficient, effective manner. And this mm-hmm. is largely attributable to the fact that you've built such a fantastic meritocracy. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what is it that you think uh, some of the other or all the other countries in ASEAN could pick up from Singapore faster than in the last, what, 60 to 70 years? Well, uh, actually what they need to pick up from Singapore is a very simple principle. Uh, Singapore succeeded exceptionally well, not because of original thinking, because Dr. Go King Sui, the founding deputy prime minister who inspired me, said, Kishore, no matter what problem Singapore encounters, somebody somewhere has solved that problem, for sure. There's nothing new in history. So he said, if you encounter a problem, let's go and find the solution. And then what we do, we copy the solution. So Singapore has succeeded by being the best copycat country in the world. Now, If Singapore has spent the last 50 years copying best practices from other countries, why don't the ASEAN countries come to Singapore and copy from Singapore? (laughs) So, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to. And I don't understand why they don't do it. I mean, sometimes they do it. I mean, the Malaysians were brilliant, you know. You know, at one stage, they wanted to get investment in Penang. And, you know, Penang has been very successful. So they said how to get uh, investment in Penang. They say, okay. They look for the Economic Development Board brochure from Singapore on why you should invest in Singapore. Then they delete Singapore, they put Penang. <laughs> so everything else is the same. Okay, why you should invest in Penang? Oh, we got good port, we got <laughs> everything. So, guess what? Penang succeeded dramatically. <laughs> oh my God. So, all you got to do is copy. So, you know, if you want to do that in uh, Batam, Go and get the economic development board brochure. Why you should invest in Batam and do it? That's all. You know, it's it's it's, it's actually and and everything we do. Look at our education system. Our education system is all copying other countries. Yeah. You know what they have done. And so, in a sense, all you have to do, and that's why when I was dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, I always told my students that all you got to do is you don't have to reinvent the wheel, go and find someone who solved the problem and copy. And, 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 and Singapore's success as a copycat country means, and by the way, Singapore is not the first to do it. The first to succeed were the Japanese in yeah. 1860s with the Meiji Restoration. Right. And that's why Dr. Gokinshi studied the Meiji Restoration immensely to understand why the Japanese succeeded. He said, hey, the Japanese succeeded by copying others. Okay, we will succeed by copying others too. <laughs> you know, and copying is actually quite easy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, 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 I like copying. You know, uh, yeah. success stories or best practices from other places. But I, I, you know, I've I've attended so many ASEAN meetings, right? 
this this sort of conversation should be more prevalent in the mm-hmm. conversations amongst ASEAN, you know, call it friends or ministers or officials and all that. I, I just don't think it would have been enough conversationally. And and I, I do believe that, you know, to, to some extent or to a lot of extent, this depends on the degree to which you have that culture mm-hmm. of reading. And and mm-hmm. I struggle to get people around me to read books uh, mm-hmm. as it is. You know, that, that mm-hmm. I think is the second uh, concern mm-hmm. or problem. So... Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I say yes. all this, and, 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 and yeah. you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right about reading books, though. I mean, as I told you, uh, if I hadn't discovered the public library uh, near my house, uh, within uh, a mile of my house, I would never have succeeded in my life. Uh, it was just reading, reading, reading that enabled me to succeed. So I completely, I want to endorse if you if the, if you want to help a poor child, yeah, anywhere. Give them books, yeah, and give them a chance to read, and then that sets the brain on fire, and then they progress. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, go back to the China situation here. Okay, I want to push the envelope a little bit. Okay, uh, China has gone through a diminishing scale of its current account. Okay. It's been running at a surplus for 25 years in its current mm-hmm. account, right? Uh, last year and this year, I think they're quite exposed, meaning their current account is going to go to a lower level, and I think they run the risk of going into a deficit territory. Mm. That basically reflects upon the degree to which they could export capital, right? I want to I want to seek your views on how you think that will have implications on their Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, well, I think it's broader than, it is the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's broader than that too. Uh, I think the Chinese have basically decided, and this is of course partly a result of the US-China geopolitical contest, that the old model of relying on export-led growth, and it was exports, as you know, that created the huge surpluses in their current account, uh, can no longer work. Yeah. Because countries around the world uh, will either refuse to accept more Chinese imports, like India has, for example, mm. or uh, they, the markets are not big enough. So the Chinese have made a major U-turn and gone from export-led growth to what they call the dual circulation theory. So you rely on two legs now. You rely on exports. Chinese exports will remain quite strong still. And you have also a d- domestic... Uh, uh, consumer, yeah. con- consumption. And let me give you one statistic which I just learned yesterday, mm. which is quite stunning. The, the domestic market for retail goods in 2009, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, in the US was $4 trillion. China was $1.8 trillion. You fast forward to 2019. Oh yeah. Uh, China's retail good market has gone from 1.8 trillion to 6 trillion. Yeah. And United States is still somewhere, double check that around 4 trillion or so. Yeah. So it's gone from being half, less than half of United States to, uh, and so at the end of the day, 
if they can continue to continue to push consumption up, that's going to become the engine of China's economic growth. And by the way, that's good for us, huh? because we in ASEAN are also going to benefit tremendously yep. from a, a increase of consumption uh, in, in in China. And and so the only growth engine that's really going to pull ASEAN out of COVID nineteen is China. Yeah. Uh, as a result of that. And so but it, they, they, it, it, the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, by the way, they still have about over $3 trillion in reserves. Uh, even if they set aside $1 trillion, that's more than enough money for the Belt and Road Initiative for 10, 20 years, you know, uh, when you look at the rate of uh, spending that they're doing. And they're also in the process learning quite a bit and learning how to inject, inject good governance, uh, best practices, uh, making sure that the money that they lend out is safe and strong and healthy. And, you know, if you look at the performances of these two banks, uh, Asian mm. Infrastructure Investment Bank right. and the New Development Bank, and you did an objective audit of them and their management practices, mm. they are actually doing better than the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. For example, in administrative costs, uh, the AIIB has been able to cut down its admin costs much more than ADB or World Bank. And as a result of that, of course, you can lend more money, right? Hmm. More bang for the buck. Uh, yeah. And so the, the, the Chinese are doing thing, many things in many areas uh, that, are, that I think are, that are right and, and, and shows the meritocracy yeah. uh, that China has developed. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that China has been dramatically increasing their domestic consumptive propensity. Hmm. Uh, you you yes. said it. It's going to be good for us because we can send goods and services to hmm. China, right? But I think exactly. on, on, at the same time, it's going to force us to better, you know, vertically integrate, you know, from a supply mm-hmm. chain standpoint. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, at, at, at this rate, you know, there's still some countries in ASEAN that do not have the necessary capable manufacturing capabilities, right? But I think in time, they're going to be forced to basically manufacture so that these goods and services are going to be, you know, consumed by the Chinese who will be consuming in great scale. And and I would say the country that has the uh, best opportunity to benefit from this is Indonesia. Because, you know, you're a young country. You have a young labor force. I haven't followed closely your recent actions on your labor laws but if the labor laws reforms goes through and there's a greater flexibility in the labor market then i predict that 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 should bring in more investment into indonesia but you are a better judge of it than i am yeah yeah well it's it's moving uh in the right direction uh i'm i'm optimistic that our investment climate is going to be better by way of the open-mindedness of the labor uh framework I want to I want to push on this since you brought up investment, right? If if we take a look at the FDI uh, on a per capita basis for a number of countries in ASEAN, Singapore is the LeBron James, right? <laughs> they are attracting <Yes. laughs> FDI at a rate of nineteen thousand dollars per person, yeah. whereas uh, Malaysia is attracting FDI on a per capita basis at two hundred and seventy dollars. And Vietnam is at $160 per capita. Whereas the Philippines, Thailand, and Indonesia are at a much more paltry amount of $91 per capita, right? 
And, and this is a, this is ironic, uh, in the sense that, you know, we are witnessing tremendous amounts of liquidity sitting mm. and floating around the United mm. States, Western European countries, mm. China, Japan, and South mm. Korea, uh, waiting for destinations or looking for destinations. Mm. What what is it that you think you know Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines could do better to improve or move mm. the needle from ninety one dollars per capita of FDI to the level at, I, of Singapore? Uh, I I by the way I have again you know I I want to go back to my point about copying, okay, and uh, I would say uh, if I was an Indonesian, the first thing I would do is to ask a group of five or six economic professors to go to Vietnam and to look at where Vietnam was 30 years ago in 1990. Look at the Vietnamese infrastructure. Look at the Vietnamese uh, state regulations. uh, Look at the amount of investment in Vietnam in 1990. Zero. Zero. Right? Now, 30 years later, fast forward. Why is Vietnam getting, uh, do you go by your figures per yeah. capita higher than Indonesia? Yeah. Uh, so the question is why? That's all. That's, and so just going copy Vietnam. So if the Vietnamese can, can, you know, create, as you know, uh, industrial sites and develop everything like world class, uh, facilities and pro- pro- provide everything, you know, Electricity, water, workers, everything, all ready. You go in there, hmm. boom, you take off. So I think, so, so in a sense, Indonesia doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, forget everybody else. Just focus on one country, Vietnam. So whatever Vietnam does today, you do tomorrow. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> but that's Kishore. Copy that. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. I want to push on this. Okay. Because yeah. I think to some extent, uh, this relates to the political system. Of, mm-hmm. of the, the respective, uh, countries or economies, right? I'm, I'm always of the view that, you know, at the rate that you are multi-party, uh, you're somewhat shackled, uh, in terms of your ability to think long-term, right? Because you're always shackled by the cycles of five years or four years of political processes. Mm-hmm. And especially mm-hmm. if you've got a dozen political parties, whereas Vietnam does not have mm-hmm. that kind of a scenario. Singapore similarly does not have that kind of a scenario, right? Mm. So w- would you have any political wisdom or advice for us in countries uh, like Indonesia? Well, the, uh, 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 let me amend my proposal. Don't send five <laughs> economics professors. Send the leaders of all your political parties to Vietnam. And I'm serious. I'm serious. Okay. Okay. And then show them the charts in 1990 where Vietnam was, where Indonesia was, then 2000 and 2010 and 2020. That's all. Just, just show them. And but, but you must take them physically there and see what they have done. And then see the, the poverty reduction rates in Vietnam. And by the way, the Vietnamese had to go through a very painful transition in dealing with foreign investors. And it was Mr. Lee Kuan Yew who described this very well. The Vietnamese got so used to being guerrilla fighters against the Americans in the Vietnam War. So they saw foreign investors also as foreign invaders that they should uh, use guerrilla tactics on them. And so they would negotiate a deal with the foreign investor 
And then after the agreement is signed, the next day when the foreign investor came to implement it, they said, sorry, deal change. Say, excuse me, I just signed yesterday. But I say, that's yesterday. This is today. So they went, and then of course, the investment dried up in Vietnam as a result of that. So, so Lee Kuan Yew had to personally tell the Vietnamese leaders, excuse me, this is not, these foreign investors are not foreign invaders. These are the people you got to get into your country. And you got to respect the agreement you sign. And for the Vietnamese, it's very painful. Very painful, you know, because they saw suddenly the foreigners making so much money. Yes, but they're also creating jobs in, in, in Vietnam, you know. So it's a, it's a question of seeing that you got to learn the whole process. You know, it wasn't easy for Vietnam. But I must say, uh, the, the Vietnamese story is just completely inspires me. Yeah. You know, yeah. no country I'm with you, man. Has, has fought wars as long as Vietnam mm. has. Vietnam was at war more or less continuously from For the a thousand 1940s. Years. No, no, a thousand <laughs> years they were occupied by China. <laughs> okay, it wasn't but, much but, of a war. But, but from, okay. from, from 19, I would say roughly from the beginning of World War II, yeah. you know. Remember, they were also invaded by the Japanese and all yeah. that. From 1939... To 1989, 50 years, non-stop fighting, you know, and and fighting not against small countries. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> they fought the French and defeated them. They fought the Americans and defeated them. And they fought the Chinese and also uh, uh, defeated them on the battleground. But they had to concede after that subsequently. So you can see the Vietnamese, despite fighting wars for so many years, when they suddenly realize, hey. Now the game is, you're not going to win the game by fighting wars. You're going to win the game by getting foreign investors to replace foreign invaders. Yeah. And then you've got to be nice. You, you kick the foreign invaders in the teeth. You cannot kick foreign investors in the teeth. You've got to smile and be nice to them. Very painful. <laughs> but the Vietnamese made a U-turn. <laughs> and I'm amazed. I'm, I'm just, I, I, I tell you, if you had asked me 30 years ago, would Vietnam succeed in economic reform and development? Yeah. I would have said, no way. These are guys yeah. that know how to fight. They don't know how to yeah. trade. <laughs> the defied, fighters have become, yeah. They have defied many of us. They have yeah, defied completely. the odds. Well, I mean, you, you're coming from a developed first world country and you have mm. gestured so much mm. humility in, mm. in basically, you know, there's, there's stuff to be learned from Vietnam. And, and I, I, yeah, and, and I, I come from a developing country, right? And I can mm. tell you there's still quite a few of us out here who mm. probably don't see Vietnam as a place that we could learn from. And that, that I think is the mental block, right? For, for us, uh, in terms of, you know, mm. development, uh, forward. Yeah. So that, that well, I think is, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I know I was going to say that, you know, the, as you know, China developed. Yeah. Because they send hundreds of mayors to learn from Singapore, yeah. right? You know what? Now Singapore is sending people to China. <laughs> I mean, why is Shenzhen oh my God. so much more successful than Singapore? Why? I mean, the economic growth rate in Shenzhen is absolutely amazing. I, 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 I saw Shenzhen... In the 1980s, there was nothing there. Rice fields and everything. Nothing. Yeah. And now you go to Shenzhen, it's amazing, yeah. you know? So, so, you know, that we, we, we all, the only lesson I've learned in life is that you cannot stop learning. 
Yeah. And and so every day, every country should be copying best practices from other countries every yeah. day. Yeah. And by the way, uh, the the most the most this this idea of learning from others was the Western habit that we learned. Yeah. But the West has lost that habit of learning. And as you know, the reason why I'm so critical of the West is that the, the for the West, for Europe, for example, is mismanaging COVID-19 so badly. Has the, any European government sent one delegation to learn from East Asia? Zero. Yeah. So the Europeans themselves are so proud. The idea that they can come and learn from Asia, they cannot buy, but they're being very stupid. Right? <laughs> It's very stupid and it's stunning. So we, we in Asia, therefore, must show the rest of the world that when it comes to learning, we are number one. Yeah. Absolutely. No disagreement. All right. Let me push on a button called tourism. You talked about it in a couple of your books, right? How we can basically develop, uh, you know, in terms of projecting soft power by way of getting more people from the international community to visit. I, I always struggle to justify why only 14 million people visited Indonesia last year. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, close to 40 million people visited Thailand and over 20 mm. million people visited Singapore last year. Mm. And and the, the last time I checked, we have more islands than Thailand and Singapore do. So <laughs> yes, can, can you give us some Ab- tips and, and how Ab- this thing will, yeah. Absolutely, because I mean, it's actually quite amazing. Again, this is a little known fact. Uh, Bangkok gets more tourists than any city in the world. Mm. Uh, and this is despite its traffic jams and despite all the problems of flooding and this and that. You know, it's not a developed city, you know. But the, the, the Thai people are just so welcoming, you know. Yeah. You know how, I don't know how to describe it. They're so, so friendly. It's a friendliness. And frankly, the Indonesian people are equally friendly, right? Equally friendly. Mm. And, and, and so actually I think that the, the industry, the one industry that can really take off in Indonesia very fast, uh, is tourism. And more and more people, I think, want to go to Indonesia, but you need to develop the infrastructure. Yeah. And, 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 and I must say the wisest thing that, uh, Indone- Indonesia can do is to sign as many open skies agreements with countries because <clears throat> when you send a, sign an open, when, 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 when uh, you, you said you interviewed Tony Fernandez, when Tony Fernandez flies his aircraft into Indonesia, he's bringing tourists into Indonesia and Indonesia uh, benefits uh, from it. So, and I say that that's, that's an easiest thing for Indonesia to do. And I can tell you, when I go back to Dr. Goking Sui, hmm. You know, Dr. Goking Sioux was very puzzled. I said, why are tourists coming to Singapore? There's nothing to see in Singapore, right? And Singapore is so small, right? I mean, look at it. I mean, as you know, I always tell my friends a story. In Indonesia, you have one mountain. On top of the mountain, you have a lake, Lake Toba. In the middle of that small lake, there's a small island. Uh, that small island is bigger than Singapore. <laughs> No, uh, I mean, so, so you can see Singapore is so stupidly, ridiculously small. Why come to Singapore? So Dr. Go had a big study and they said, we don't know why. 
Well, Samoser and Toba do not yet have uh, orchard road, right? <laughs> <They're all laughs> but at such time when we have orchard road out there, I think it's going to get more tourists than Singapore does. But it's not just the consumer side. I think I, 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 I predict that the fastest growing tourism sector will be ecotourism. Yeah. And people want to go and see natural places and natural forests. So, and, 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 and I think that's something that Indonesia can aspire to be number one in the world, mm. uh, in terms of eco, uh, tourism. Yeah. And, and, and this is something that will bring in investors very quickly, yeah. uh, who will want to invest in resorts, uh, in remote places. And as long as people can fly there, they will go there. And, and, and that's a tremendous, uh, advantage, uh, that Indonesia has, you know. Yeah. And I'm, I was told by Ali Alatas uh, once mm, mm. that, uh, the legend. Uh, yeah, the legend. He, oh, he was a very good friend of mine. Oh my God. I learned a lot from a him. Good very man. good friend. A good very man. good yeah. man. I, I liked him a lot. I was mm. very fond of him. And, uh, uh, he said there was once Indonesia produced a series of programs about Indonesia. And he said millions of Indonesians watched it because Indonesians themselves did not know what a beautiful country Indonesia was. <laughs> right? And you have these amazing places in so you know, damn big. uh Kalimantan and Sulawesi and Sumatra. So you're an amazing country. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, post COVID nineteen, uh the best way to jumpstart uh the Indonesian economy is to Really, uh, 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 open up your doors to flight from anywhere and yeah. just uh, allow a bit of chaos. It's okay yeah. <laughs> to happen. And, and, and then in the process of chaos, more and more people will come and discover Indonesia. You know, I've been, I've been hypothesizing or mm. asserting as of late that there is no reason for Indonesia not to get 150 million tourists internationally mm-hmm. a year. Easily. Easily, Easily. with, with 17,000 islands. Now, yes. I, I, I want to go back to your earlier point. And, and, yeah. and just, just as a mm. small aside. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in 2019, China sent out 130 yeah. million yeah. Chinese I tourists. Saw that. Yeah. Amazing. The Chinese love to go to United States of America. The United States of America is going to become unwelcoming for Chinese tourists. Yeah. That creates a market opportunity. Right. You see, right. this is an example of strategic thinking yeah. and therefore set up a department in your Ministry of Tourism just for Chinese yeah. tourists. I agree. And I tell you, I was shocked. You know, when I went to the Maldives, oh, I yeah. thought in Maldives, only the Orang Putih will go there, right? Only the, or only the Westerners yeah, yeah, yeah. like this uh, yeah. beautiful nature and all that. I was stunned yeah. by the number of Chinese tourists yeah. in Maldives yeah. because the Maldives government set up a special unit to bring in Absolutely. Chinese tourists. Absolutely. See? You see, you can copy. Yeah. Let's copy. <laughs> you know, we went there, my wife and I, and when yes. we landed, I can tell you, if I looked left and right, 60% of the tourists were from mainland China. Yeah. I mean, yes. it's, it's staggering. I was, shocked. And, I was shocked by that. And you know how you take the seaplane, right? From the capital city to the island, right? And, you know, it seats about 15 people. We were the only Indonesians, you know, and yes. the, the remaining 13 were mainly in Chinese. 
Yes. You know, hopping. That's quite stunning. It's stunning. Staggering. Yeah. Staggering. But and uh, by the way, hmm. uh, India is much nearer. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so few Indian tourists going to Maldives. <laughs> But yeah. you said that there's a huge market. And you see, don't forget, uh, there is, I, I forget the term for you. I think there is an economic term for it. There's a, a tipping point where, peop- where, where people can suddenly, when they, they suddenly have uh, what you call disposable income. Correct. Right? They, all their lives, they just have enough to go, enough to, keep, enough to keep going. And now the Chinese per capita income has reached a tipping point. When suddenly, suddenly hundreds of millions of Chinese now have a few thousand dollars in spare cash that they never had before. And by the way, a few thousand dollars in spare cash is all you need to get to Sulawesi, you know, or get to Papua or, you know, or, or yeah. And, and you know, I, uh, uh, so, and I can tell you, as soon as COVID-19 is over, one of my dreams is to go travel to all parts of Indonesia. You let me know, man. I'll be happy to be your tour guide. <laughs> I want to come and play on your golf course in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, you, you alluded to the eco-tourism. Okay, mm. I want to push on this environmental button, mm. right? Uh, I, I'm yes. absolutely in agreement with you. Uh, you know, at the rate mm. that we have a finite amount of fossil fuel to burn and emit, mm. Right. There is there is no choice for humanity mm. but to basically gravitate to a renewable energy. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's it's just amazing. If I talk to the Generation Z members, mm. still not a whole bunch of them, you know, are engaged mm. in conversations on preserving the planet. What mm. what what is your view in terms of be it in the context of ASEAN or the world's basically embracing mm. this framework, uh, call it the mm. Paris Accord or call it whatever it takes for mm. us to basically be able to preserve the planet. Uh, I think fortunately uh, among the young people all over the world, there's a growing awareness and understanding that we live in a small in parallel planet Earth, you know. And we have to come together. And that's why, you know, in the closing paragraph of my book, As China Won, I say that if U.S. and China keep fighting while mm. global warming is happening, future historians will describe them as two tribes of apes uh, who are fighting each other while the forest around them was burning. Yeah. And we think only the apes are so stupid as to do that. Mm. But we human beings are being very stupid mm. in not coming together to stop global warming. But the young people understand that increasingly. And so, and, 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 and the good news is that China is being uh, ecologically responsible. Yeah. It is the first country in the world to create the concept of ecological civilization. And I wish the United States would copy the concept of ecological civilization too. And then the Chinese people, as a result, are becoming much more environmentally aware uh, of what's happening. And so I expect that the Chinese people will also buy this idea uh, of ecotourism. And and I think what you should do, of course, is to try uh, a few experiments of marketing it in various Chinese cities. And I'm reasonably confident that you will succeed very well. I'm, I'm actually optimistic. Uh, about China's playing a very proactive role in preserving the climate and the planet. 
uh, if, if we take a look at how they have been so resolute in reaching mm-hmm. peak, you know, carbon emission in the year 2030 and mm-hmm. how they've been able to embrace electric vehicles for transportation mm-hmm. purposes, how they've been pretty, I think, uh, consistent in reducing, you know, dependence on coal and all that good stuff. Uh, if, if there's any country that's been proactive towards, you know, this big goal, of climate change, uh, I think China, and and I, I actually see it. Uh, I see China as having a positive impact on mm-hmm. how we behave in Southeast Asia, uh, mm-hmm. and and you could, you know, allow that to imply on ecotourism, but I think it could imply on to many other things that we do out here in Southeast Asia. Do you yes. have any views on that? I, yeah. No, no, I, I agree, and I and I think it's such a tragedy that the United States. Uh, the United States always says China is the largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. But that's only if you count the current flow. If you look at the stock that the United States has put in the atmosphere, the United States has put far more greenhouse gas emissions in the, in the atmosphere than China has. And it's shocking that it is China, which is still, relatively speaking, a developing country, has announced a carbon-neutral goal of 2060 and United States hasn't announced a carbon neutral goal. Yeah. That's terrible. The world's richest country should also be the world's most responsible country. And it's shocking that United States is not doing so. And therefore we, we from outside should apply greater moral pressure mm. on United States and say the United States must lead the way in setting an example in terms of uh, responsible behavior towards uh, curbing global warming. Yeah. All right. I want to move from the environment. Uh, We've got a few minutes left. Uh, I want to move from the environment to technology. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've I've been saying in a number of occasions how individual democratization has not led to the right kind of equality. I've also been saying how market democratization, neoliberalism, has not led to the right kind of equality. And as of late, I've been saying how data democratization has not led to the right kind of equality that the world needs. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what your views are with respect to data democratization or technology. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I emphasize to you that the uh, copying is the best way of learning. Yeah. And uh, I copy uh, a man called Amatya Sen. (laughs) As you know, Nobel Prize winner in economics. Uh, He said, for countries to succeed, you need the invisible hand of free markets, right? Which is what the US and UK have been focused on. Mm. But you also need the visible hand of good governance. So in all the sectors that you mentioned, if you have very smart people in technology and if you have very smart people in data, you must have equally smart people who are regulating this technology or regulating this data. Because if the guys that are doing the data and technology are much smarter than the regulators, then they run circles around the regulators. And that's how they end up getting monopolies and uh, they till the level playing field in their favor and so on and so forth. And, and so that's, that's basically what the problem in the United States is because the regulators in the United States are not as smart as the people in Silicon Valley 
And so the people in Silicon Valley run, run circles around the regulators. Uh, and so it's very important. I mean, the biggest strategic mistake that the United States made was to listen to Reagan's, uh, Donald Reagan's advice. He said, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. So as you know, the United States has been defunding, mm. delegitimizing, demoralizing government agencies. And therefore, like even the FDA and CDC perform badly in response to COVID-19. That's what happens when you attack government agencies and defund them and demoralize them. So we must yep. learn from, again, the copy. We must learn that the countries that succeed, and frankly, like Singapore has done that very well. Yeah. We have the invisible hand of free markets, but our regulators are smarter than the uh, people in the markets. And therefore, they can make sure that the, the companies don't run and 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 promote their own self-interest and sometimes undermine the national interest in doing so. See, Kishore, there is a there is a structural issue in some countries, right? Uh, from from a compensation standpoint, right? The guys in the private enterprise are making a million dollars a year, whereas the guys in the public enterprise are making twenty five thousand dollars a year, right? To compound that issue. You've got the exponentiality of the problem in the private enterprise or private sector, and you've got the mere linearity of the solving capabilities or resolving capabilities within the regulatory framework. So it, it, it's, it's pretty systemic, right? I, I think it takes open-mindedness to fix this, you know, at the leadership uh, level. Uh, until such time that gets fixed, I think, you know, we're going to be exposed. Yeah, right. But I hope, I hope that there are enough people in most societies who have actually made enough money and who can then devote part of their lives to also doing some, uh, public service, you know. Yeah. And there are ways and means of, uh, creating, uh, informal vehicles, uh, to bring in, uh, people who, who are super smart in the private sector. So for example, Again, copying from Singapore. Right. Uh, every ministry, the, the minister will have a group of advisors. Uh, they're often from the private sector, uh, mm-hmm. often making lot, tons more, tons of money, but who like the idea of doing some public service. Yeah. And, uh, advising. And so there are people like that who can bring in and say, Hey, you know, you know this uh, sector very well. What's your advice to us? Uh, what, what, what do you do and get, of course, you make sure you balance, you get a variety of advisors, not all those who think the same way or from one company and so on and so forth. Mm. Then you can get ways and means, uh, uh, of doing that. And by the way, when Singapore started off, eh, uh, the government salaries in Singapore were very low, you know, uh, and, and despite that, we are lucky. And we were just, Singapore was very lucky by accident. We got three brilliant men, Lee Kuan Yew, Go King Sri Rajaranam, who are also very honest. Completely incorruptible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just very bizarre. Yeah. And, uh, it's a but blessing. they, they, and it was a blessing. And their salaries did not go up until the 1990s. Mm. So when, when Lee Kuan Yew became prime minister in 1959, his salary was the same as any developing country salary. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to end this session with a, a few rapid fire questions. Sure. Right. Uh, so you want short, short answers? Short answers or it can be long, you know, but the question will be very quick. Muhammad <laughs> hmm. uh, Rafi or Amitabh Bachchan? Uh, Muhammad Rafi. <laughs> <laughs> That's too easy. 
That's too easy. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll make it a little bit harder. I, I love, I love Muhammad Rafi. Okay, <laughs> and and the reason why my brain is functioning is because of Muhammad Rafi. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that because uh, you know I'm I'm I used to be a musician. So yeah. Uh, the next one would be code of conduct for the resolution of the South China Sea, or mm-hmm. otherwise. Uh, code of conduct, and I think that's something that. China should try to reach an agreement with the ASEAN countries as quickly as uh, possible because it is in China's national interest to do so. The South China Sea is the number one weapon that the United States will use to embarrass China globally. And if China can conclude a code of conduct with ASEAN, then the United States has got to shut its mouth on South China Sea. Great. The, uh, the 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 next one uh, is you foresee ASEAN having its own currency? Zero chance. Okay, explain. I mean, I'm I'm, uh, I'm with you, but I want you to absolutely, articulate absolute the answer. Zero chance because uh, I think the big lesson that the ASEAN countries have learned from the European Union is that sometimes you can go too far in integrating yourselves. And the ASEAN countries are better off preserving their sovereignty and then uh, cooperating where there is in their common interest to do so, in most cases, without sacrificing their sovereignty. And of course, if you have a common currency, you've got to have a common monetary policy and a common fiscal policy, and you can no longer have budget deficits even in in a, a major crisis. And so... Therefore, it is not wise uh, for ASEAN countries to give up their sovereignty for a common currency. All right. This this is going to be the second last rapid-fire question. What, what is it that Singapore could have done differently? Uh, to make it better. I mean, not uh, that it's uh, not good already. It's great. The Singapore government has been very good in handling the hard challenges faced by Singapore, especially the economic challenges. The Singapore government has not been very good in handling the soft challenges that Singapore is facing. Like, for example, the question of a national identity. And Singapore, as you know, is a multiracial country, 75% Chinese, 15% Malay, 6 to 8% Indian like me. And till today, we still talk about our ethnic identities. Mm. At some point in time, the tipping point will come and the Singaporean will say, I'm a Singaporean first and Indian second, you know. And, and, and therefore, the common Singaporean identity uh, needs to flower and emerge. And for it to flower and emerge, it needs an enabling environment, Uh, a greater diversity of voices, richer, uh, how do you say, production of literature, novels, poems, and so on and so forth, you know. So that dimension of Singapore society, uh, the softer side has not done as well as the harder side. And I think we should spend more time on the softer side. All right, the last one, man. Mm. How much longer do you think ASEAN will have to wait to get its Nobel Prize? Uh, 
it, it depends on whether or not uh, you can replace the Nobel Peace Prize Committee and have an international committee a jury mm. to select the Nobel Peace Prize rather than a group of Norwegian gentlemen, as I say, primarily gentlemen, right. maybe some ladies there. Uh, to select the, the peace prize because what's happened is that it's becoming very, very clear that the 200 years artificial period of Western domination of world history is ending and the 21st century will be an Asian century. So this idea that a group of old men uh, or old people from one society can understand the Asian century and where the new success stories are coming from, I think it's a bit hard to believe. Yeah. And, I, and I would say if there's one simple indicator that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee can give that they have woken up to the new world, they should begin by showing their new understanding by, by giving ASEAN the Nobel Peace Prize sometime in the next 10 years. Wow. On that note, I'm, I'm hugely encouraged. Kishore, it's it's been fascinating, and it's it's a pleasure and an honor to to have you on our show. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Teman-teman, itulah Profesor Kishore Mabubani, teman dekat kita dari Singapura. Terima kasih. Inilah Endgame. 